Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 856. As we continue making our way uh, through the first part of Luke during this Advent season, uh, we came last week to a section where Luke is slowing down the story uh, to to record some of the personal reflections of the main characters. And, And we saw that The reason that he's including these insights is because he's helping us, as readers of the story, to understand the significance of what's happening, so that we'll be able to better appreciate uh, what God is going to continue to do as the story unfolds. And so we're going to continue that this morning as Zechariah prophesies after the birth of John the Baptist. And so we're in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so as we pick the story back up here in verse 57, we see that the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And just as Gabriel had promised, she has a son. Luke tells us that when Elizabeth's friends and her her family hear that she has had a son, they rejoice with her. No doubt they had been with her on the emotional roller coaster of, of walking through infertility for years. And so for her to finally be blessed with this child that she had wanted for so long was a cause of great joy for them as well. And so Zechariah, or God's promise to Zechariah is fulfilled in the birth of this son. In verse 59, the eighth day comes, which was the time to circumcise the son according to the law. And Luke tells us that everyone who gathered together for this ceremony wanted to call the baby Zechariah. In fact, the text indicates that they were already referring to him as Zechariah. But then Elizabeth cuts in and insists that his name will be John, just like Gabriel instructed. Now this sets up an interesting standoff. You see, all the friends and family are convinced that the baby should be named Zechariah. They point out that nobody in the family has the name John. There's, There's no tradition here. And So why not stick with the convention of of naming a son after his father or grandfather? And I think this is funny because it happens to everybody. What is it about having a baby 
that everybody decides that they get an opinion about what the baby should be named. It's my baby. Well, in the ancient world, naming a child was the prerogative of the father. And so to, to circumvent Elizabeth, everybody turns to Zechariah to, to see what he thinks the baby should be named. Now, there's reason to suspect that not only is Zechariah unable to speak, but that he's also deaf. And so the, the word for mute from back in uh, verse 22 can also mean deaf, and that would explain why they're also having to motion to him instead of just talking to him, because he can't understand them very well. So like, okay, put up one finger if you want to name the baby Zechariah. All right? Or put up two fingers if you want to name the baby Zechariah. All right? And so, unable to, to communicate his thoughts, Zechariah asks for a writing tablet. And in verse 63, he clearly indicates that the baby's name is John. And when everybody sees this, they, they wonder, they marvel, why are they doing this? What, what's going on here? Well, then the plot thickens even more. You see, as Zechariah obeys the Lord's command to name the baby John, Luke tells us in verse 64 that immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. You see, the Lord had disciplined Zechariah for not believing his promise when he told him that he was going to have a son. And he did that by taking away his ability to speak until all these things have taken place. And now that everything has been fulfilled, the Lord restores his ability to speak. And the first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth are praises for what God has done. And if the friends and family were confused before, now they are officially freaked out because they have no idea what's going on. And we see in verses 65 and 66 that fear came on all of their neighbors. Right? All of a sudden he's talking again. And all of these things are, are spread throughout all of the, the region. And Luke tells us that all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. All right, so first of all, Zechariah mysteriously loses his ability to speak. And then Elizabeth miraculously gets pregnant and has this son. And then they break social norms by naming him John, despite their protests. And as soon as they do that, now all of a sudden Zechariah can speak again. Right? And, so, and as, this, as this happens, uh, people can't necessarily connect all the dots, but they can tell that something's going on here. Right? God is at work in this situation in some way. And the news of what happens spreads throughout the region. Now, we could rightly ask why any of this matters. Right? Why does Luke take time to tell us a story about a family argument over a baby name. Well, I think the significance is that, particularly in light of the context of this section of the story, that the point is that John's naming re-emphasizes who he is. And what I mean by that is I'm not saying that the name John is necessarily significant. There are a number of Johns in the New Testament. It's not a unique name in any way. But I think that the point is that God giving John his name, rather than Zechariah or Elizabeth, indicates that he is not Zechariah and Elizabeth's child. Now, obviously, John is Zechariah and Elizabeth's child. We know that. But my, my point is, is that God has graciously given the, him to them for a specific purpose. 
So he's not their child in that sense. He ultimately belongs to the Lord. He's not going to be a chip off the old block. He's not going to follow in his father's footsteps. The Lord has a specific assignment that is unique to him. I think this this is what prompts the question at the end of verse 66. What then will this child be? With everything going on, the people realize that God is doing something with this baby. And Zechariah is going to clarify how the Lord is at work as he prophesies, beginning in verse 67. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so as we pick up again in verse 67, when Zechariah regains his voice, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And just as we saw last week that that Elizabeth pronounced a a divinely inspired blessing, and Mary uh, gave a, a, a hymn of praise to God, so now Zechariah prophesies. The Holy Spirit leads him to reveal what God is doing in this situation. And he begins by blessing God because he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. And before we tackle the specifics, you'll you'll notice that like last week, Zechariah is using the the prophetic past tense, being so certain of what God is doing here that he presents it as if it has already happened. And so in verses 68 and 69, Zechariah credits God with three things, visiting his people, redeeming his people, and raising up a horn of salvation for them. And so the term visit is a word that's used, particularly in the Old Testament, to refer to God acting either in salvation or in judgment. And so you'll remember that in Ruth, uh, that we saw that God visited his people in salvation, meaning that he ended the famine, which enabled Ruth and, and Naomi to come back home. And here, the context clearly indicates a sense of salvation as well. The Lord has acted to save his people. Next, the word redeem refers to purchasing someone's freedom out of slavery. Or, as we saw in Ruth, rescuing someone out of poverty. And so in this sense, Zechariah sees God's people trapped in a situation that they are powerless to do anything about on their own. And so the Lord is coming to redeem them. And then finally, the phrase, a a horn of salvation, refers to the means by which God will accomplish salvation. And so the the term horn has its its origins in the horns of animals that were seen uh, to be powerful or dominant in the ancient world. So you may think of a ram, or of a bull, or even a rhinoceros, for that matter. If, If an animal with horns decides to charge... If you have any brains at all, you're going to get out of the way, right? Because they'll mess you up, or or worse. And so over time, horns came to symbolize strength in the ancient world, and they were used metaphorically to refer to the power 
to achieve victory in battle. And so here, Zechariah refers to a horn of salvation because he sees that God has established somebody who is going to achieve victory for his people. And we're going to see more about that in just a moment. But first, you'll notice at the end of verse 69 that this horn of salvation that that God is raising up is, is coming from within the house of his servant David. And this is a clear messianic illusion. Zechariah recognizes that God is bringing forth the messianic king from David's lineage. In other words, he's referring to Jesus. We saw last week that Mary came to stay with Zechariah and Elizabeth for three months. And so Zechariah is well positioned to understand that God, through Jesus, is bringing about the salvation that has been promised for thousands of years, which is why he mentions in verse 70 that this is the salvation that the prophets from of old spoke of. And then in verses 71 through 75, Zechariah brings out the result of this salvation, which is that in line with the covenant that he made with Abraham, the Lord will deliver his people from their enemies so that they can serve him as they should, without fear, in holiness and righteousness, forever. And so as we've talked about many times, the Lord made a covenant promise to Abraham that his descendants would be his covenant people. He promised that those who blessed them would be blessed by the Lord, and that those who dishonored them would be cursed by the Lord. That that the Lord would would bless those who blessed his people and would uh, curse those who dishonored them. But because the people broke this covenant... This hasn't been the case now for some time. First the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, then the Persians, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans have all conquered and oppressed the Jews. And as we've seen in Esther and in Nehemiah, there are other enemies who are constantly seeking to persecute the Jews and make life as difficult as possible for them. But Zechariah sees that the Messiah is going to conquer his enemies and deliver his people from their oppression so that they can love and serve him without hindrance. Then beginning in verse 76, Zechariah turns his attention to John and the role that he will play in the Messiah's work. And so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 76. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So beginning in verse 76, Zechariah looks down at his newborn baby, this son that he prayed for for who knows how long, and he reveals the significance of the life he will live. He says to him, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so as we've been anticipating for some time now, John is the prophet who Malachi predicted. But the one who the Lord promised to send to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, who we now know is going to be Jesus. And so in verse 77, we see that the way John is going to prepare the way for Jesus 
is by giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so this is another development in our understanding of who Jesus is and and who he will be as the Messiah. The salvation he brings is tied to the forgiveness of his people's sins. And so John's role is going to be to confront the people about their need for salvation and to point them to Jesus as the source of this salvation. The salvation that God is making available through him. And as we see in verse 78, this is all because of the tender mercy of God. God's love for his people. His unwillingness to punish them as they deserve is what motivates him to save them. Then in the second half of verse 78 through 79, Zechariah describes God's tender mercy in figurative language that again echoes Old Testament promises. First of all, he says that because of God's tender mercy, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Of course, the the imagery of a sunrise is, is hopeful, it's peaceful, it's renewing, full of potential. Among other places, we should remember that Malachi promised in chapter 4, verse 2, that for those who fear the Lord, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Jesus is how that's going to come to fulfillment. We also see that this sunrise will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Of course, one of the most famous messianic promises in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 9, where we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is how this is going to come to fulfillment. And Zechariah sees that the time of fulfillment is finally here. Luke closes the passage by telling us that that John grew and became strong in spirit, meaning that that he grew up and developed into the man that God wanted him to be. Then we also see that he lived in the wilderness until the time came for his public appearance to Israel, meaning that he, he lived out in obscurity, away from civilization, and, and was kind of a, a survivalist. So that when he steps onto the scene for his public ministry, he is literally going to be coming from out of nowhere. So the stage of, is set. The time of waiting is almost over. And we're going to see how the story continues as we finish our Advent series with the birth of Jesus next week. But in our passage this morning, Luke gives us a final opportunity to pause and to prepare ourselves for what God is going to do over the rest of this story through the life and ministry of Jesus. And Zechariah prophesies about the significance of what God is doing through the births of John and Jesus. We see that the promised time of salvation is finally at hand. And Zechariah's prophecy portrays salvation in two ways. The first part emphasizes deliverance from our enemies, and the second part emphasizes the forgiveness of our sin. And it's kind of interesting that people in the first century really emphasized the first part. They wanted to be delivered from their enemies, 
And people today tend to emphasize the second part, the importance of forgiveness of sins. But the reality is that both of these elements go together. These are, are two sides of the same coin. Most churches today tend to to rightly emphasize the importance of the forgiveness of sins. The good news of the gospel, what this story is all about, is that in dying on the cross, Jesus took punishment he did not deserve so that you and I could be spared from the punishment that we do deserve because of our rebellion against the God who has created us. If we will turn from our sin and place all of our hope for salvation in what Jesus has done to save us. And the scriptures declare that we will be forgiven of our sin and reconciled with God. The Apostle Paul reminded Timothy that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But even more than that, when it comes to the idea of being delivered from our enemies, the Jews needed to understand that the reason they were in captivity physically is because of their rebellion against God, their unrepentant sin against the Lord. Their deepest problem was their captivity to sin, and so true salvation had to begin with their hearts being renewed through faith in Jesus. Only when they've been delivered from their rebellion against the Lord will they be able to be delivered from the oppression of their enemies. But having said that, It's also true that Jesus' salvation will bring ultimate deliverance from our enemies as well. Zechariah refers to the enemies of God's people that make life difficult for them and test their faith. Now today, our our enemies don't tend to be people as much as they did in, in the ancient world, although that can still be the case, particularly in places where the church experiences persecution. But make no mistake, we still have many enemies of our faith. And in this this world that we live in, we're surrounded by events and circumstances that that make life difficult for us, things that we struggle through. Think of things like natural disasters, like hurricanes or the tornadoes that just destroyed and swept through the Midwest a couple of days ago. You think of sickness and disease, financial difficulties, relational conflicts, the disappointment of unmet expectations, and ultimately the reality of death. All of these things affect us, and Satan tries to use all of these things to to tempt us to, to question God, to be embittered towards God, to walk away from our faith, to question the truth of his word. All of these things are enemies of our faith. But the good news this morning is that all of these things have an expiration date. Because Jesus has conquered over sin and death, there is coming a day that we look forward to when Jesus comes again to subdue his enemies and set us free from them forever. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, we see that connection between Jesus making forgiveness of sins available and conquering his enemies. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 26, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Church, one day all of our enemies will be destroyed, and we will be set free from them forever. You know, it's interesting, over the last several years as I have done Advent series, I've, I've always taken one week to, to address the tension between the expectations that our culture places on the holiday season and the reality that, that the holidays are actually very rarely, if ever truly, holly and jolly. Right? The longer we live, the more the holiday season becomes bittersweet, or, or, or maybe even just bitter for a variety of reasons. But for the first time this year, I actually wasn't planning to do that. And then the Lord laid this text in our lap for this week. And we are reminded through Zechariah's prophecy that Jesus' birth means that eventually we will be delivered from all of the enemies that make this life so difficult. And if we understand and embrace what Zechariah says in this passage, then we'll realize that the true meaning of Christmas gives us a much deeper more meaningful and abiding reason to celebrate than, than the mere sense of nostalgia or commercialism or any of the other alternatives that this world throws at us. You see, Christmas isn't about everything being perfect right here, right now. It's actually exactly the opposite. Right? Christmas is all about the hope we have that one day everything will be perfect forever. And that is why we celebrate. Right, in Advent, we, we look back to Jesus' birth, but we also look forward to the day when he comes again to make all things new. And when the dust settles, all who have trusted in Christ will be together with him forever. And so in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle John looks ahead and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, this year has been hard for us. Uh, for many of us, it has been the hardest year of our lives. But while this Christmas may not be shaping up to be the most wonderful time of the year, if we have eyes to see God's word this morning, it can be the most meaningful, most worshipful Christmas we've ever had because we have hope that God always keeps his promises. And so this morning, let's continue to prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that comes with that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> 